Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover, the co-host of the show, who is the CEO of Fieldcraft LLC. Now, Mike has been extremely busy the last couple of days, and he couldn't make it on for the last episode. Uh, so, Mike, it's good to have you back. Uh, can you update uh, some of the listeners on what you've been working on? Absolutely, John. Good to be back. Hey, guys, it's Mike from Fieldcraft. And, uh, yeah, like like John said, I've been task-saturated with a whole bunch of projects and up-and-coming things. That's all good stuff. Um, if you guys haven't tuned into social, our social media on at uh, Soft Survivor and Fieldcraft Survival on Instagram, We've been plugging this this course that's coming up 30 April. We got a couple more slots left, but this course is with uh, myself and Travis Osborne. Uh, Travis Travis was the medic who first responded and rescued uh, Marcus Luttrell, and we've had him on previous podcasts. But Travis is a good friend of mine, uh, former teammate of mine, former sniper teammate, and Travis is going to come down, and we're going to have this awesome and epic course where we're going to run a minimalist survival tactical med course. We're calling it. Uh, we will be running and gunning and, and putting guys and gals through s- certain scenarios that you might find yourself in um, in this new world that we live in, but also focused on immediate response and um, especially in the realm of, of trauma that you might face or might see in these type scenarios. So look forward to that course on 30 April. Again, if you uh, want to sign up for that course, it's on uh, my website at fieldcraftsurvival.com. You can go to the store and it's under tactical med course. And again, there's only uh, two more slots. So uh, snag them up if you can. Also, we've been working on different projects. Uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday, I'll be dropping the pre-sales for a DVD that we got coming out. We'll have a DVD hard copy version and a media version of how to get selected for special forces. It's a pretty cool project that we're working on it's a three volume series uh we look forward to dropping that and pre-selling it uh with a 10 percent discount for the pre-sale and it'll be available um more than likely at the end of uh the end of may so yeah man a whole bunch of stuff going on and a, a, a new product line coming out that, that i won't unveil yet but yeah it's good stuff all good stuff nice nice uh keeping busy man so I interviewed uh, Mike Stahl, the uh, Mac Vsaw Green Beret, who you, you've talked to a bunch of times, and Two Lamb from Ronin Tactics, and we, well, more of them. But what the topic of discussion was um, working with Indigenous forces, which is a like a hallmark of special forces. Um, one, one of the uh, one one of the things you guys specialize in is like FID, Foreign Internal Defense, or like I said, just going into a country and training up with the locals from the country and, you know, conducting operations. And that was something that Special Forces was really big on in Vietnam, obviously, and even till this day. And I know you have tremendous amount of experience in, in those type of operations. Um, so is there any, like, specific time or place that you can recall or, or even if you just want to, t- to kind of talk about it in general where you can uh give the audience some of your experience yeah yeah it's a 
you know, foreign internal defense and what me and two would call CT fit or counterterrorism, foreign internal defense is one of, I know from me and two's perspective, one of our most passionate, um, mission sets in special forces. Um, everybody's doing it now. It's nothing new. You know, the OSS from the beginning with Aaron bank and world war two, we're doing it with auxiliary underground elements, partisan, uh, elements, uh, and we've been doing it throughout the history of warfare. I think what's important for the you know the new generation of special operations operators is that leading into this war that we're facing with ISIS, you have to do it with uh, a, a bilateral option or a, a host nation option, which empowers other elements uh, that have a, have a vested interest. Uh, in combating ISIS uh, to basically, you know, meet and and uh, move forward with our objectives as well as their objectives. So with this common thread, we could basically uh, kill and capture ISIS and, and annihilate them off the face of the planet. So it's it's a war strategy, big time strategic element to countering ISIS, and it's very important for the viewers to understand. You know where where special forces sits in the scheme of maneuver of of, of battling ISIS uh, today. Um, so my first combat deployment with special forces, which was in Af- Afghanistan. You know we were at a remote fire base. In fact, Travis was uh, Travis Osborne was down south, and I was up north. But we were on the border of Pakistan, and I remember I was a junior uh, weapons sergeant, junior eighteen Bravo. And my senior hadn't uh, deployed with us because of he had he had an injury, and so I was the senior. And I remember hitting the ground, and my team sergeant Willie, you know, basically said, "Hey, your Afghans are here." And and I said, "What Afghans?" And he said, "Your Afghan commando force." You know, and at the time they were called ASF, which is Afghan Special Forces. This is before we had even stood up the Afghan National Army and the Border Police, and. Special Forces was just paying uh, local nationals, training and selecting them, and then doing operations with them to counter Taliban and Haqqani terrorists um, in the regions that we were operating in. And I remember, you know, the the leadership challenges along with the mentorship challenges of being handed 144 Afghans saying, hey, you're, you're now the commander of these guys. And, you know, it was a learning process where for nine months I spent in Afghanistan in this remote firebase, you know, sleeping, living, eating, you know, breaking bread and conducting, uh, uh, planning and conducting combat operations with these guys that, that changes your whole perspective on, you know, what it means to operate with other nations, indigenous elements and, and, really the capacity and capability they provide on the battlefield for you to, you know, meet the enemy on, on, on certain objectives. Uh, right now, you know, look at leading, leading into the fight with ISIS, you know, it's a very political driven, um, strategy that we're, that we're, we're playing out because, you know, nobody wants to make a mistake as a policymaker. And this is what allows, you know, policymakers to make decisions, to do bilateral operations because bilat operations is what is going to get approved at the policy level 
but strategically going to assist in the overall plan. You know, unilaterally us going into any country now in global pursuit uh, doesn't brief well um, and is not a good strategy against countering any terrorist element. Uh, we need buy-in and vested interest in all these different countries and these different elements to be able to, to truly and effectively win the overall strategy. So um, foreign internal defense is something, you know, obviously, you know, we talk about a lot because it's, it's the most critical and important aspect of special forces operations for all services and all elements and, and the current fight against terrorism today. Hey, Mike, so over the last couple of days, you know, people email and send messages in about questions they might have. So here's a question that I thought was interesting. Um, so here's the question. Hey, guys, first of all, I love the podcast. I'm a former 275 Ranger now in the WA Army National Guard. I am finishing up my degree and was considering trying out for 19th group as an officer when I am eligible. What tips would you have and how do the 18 alphas work with other members of the team? I am only used to the light infantry model, which is more or less what we used in battalion and in the guard. Thanks and keep the good work coming. Um, really, really good question. It's something that's not talked about a lot. You know, officers and special forces um, are the team leaders of the actual detachments but operationally, they don't really get a lot of time on the ground, and they don't get, in, in my opinion, they don't get enough team time to be effective leaders at the battalion level once they leave the teams um, um, and become company commanders and battalion commanders. But in, in the National Guard, it's a little different because uh, the National Guard, like when I got off active duty, I transitioned and became a team sergeant of a 19th Group Special Forces team, and I didn't have a team leader because there just wasn't an officer available. So I, I did the team leader uh, slash team sergeant positioning. Uh, being an 18 Alpha on a National Guard Special Forces team, you can get more team time because, you know, obviously we, we call it nickel and diamond. You're, you're working the weekends. You could accumulate a lot of active duty time, but by doing deployments and then um, being on that team for a long period of time. But at some point, you know, you're going to get promoted and then you're going to get pushed out to a staff position and then uh, potentially take a company. Um, the, the, the best, you know, task organization wise, the team leader is the commission officer who's ultimately overall in charge of the team. But he leans obviously on his operations sergeant, his team sergeant, because he's the most experienced and is the lead trainer for all the NCOs on that team. So, you know, speaking from experience on active duty, me and my team leader, when I was a team sergeant on active duty, uh, his name is Craig Kopic. He lives in uh, Colorado. He's getting his master's in business. Craig was one of the uh, best officers I ever worked with, but he was, you know, he's a West Pointer. He had a team prior to coming to the SIF to work with us. So, we had a good dynamic in that there was no egos involved. You know, it wasn't me saying it was my team. It was our team. So the best advice I can give is one, if that's the, the route that you want to go, uh, ever, I think every good officer in the military leans on their NCOs experience 
and utilizes uh, their their leadership and their hard skills to really execute their intent. You know, every good commander has the commander's intent, and they depend on their NCOs to execute that intent. And that comes with a level of trust and trusting uh, in their guys. So in the National Guard, it's a little different because you could stay on a team for an extended period of time because you're really not culminating uh, one week in a month and two weeks a year or a deployment a year, uh, an entire um, two to three years of experience that a typical 18 Alpha would have on active duty. So you can get a lot of experience from having uh, exposure to your team over a long period of time. So to me, it's a good deal no matter how you look at it because you know, you're a team leader, but you also have uh, the opportunities to deploy, do, to do combat operations with your guys, but also get more team time than you would typically get on active duty as a team leader. And obviously, in the National Guard, there's a whole bunch of different venues that, um, and, and different positions that you could do outside of being an 18 Alpha after you're done um, leading into you become a company commander and then a battalion commander. So yeah, I would say as a two seven former two seven five guy, former Ranger Regiment guy, with experience on the ground in combat, um, you're going to make a huge impression and probably be a better officer for it by being prior enlisted and then being prior uh, combat experience as a Ranger. So with that being said, um, you know we talked a little bit about FID and and the the reason it's important um, and answered the the podcast question. Let's go into the interview with my boy Tulan from Run Tactics and Mike Stahl, former MACB SOG veteran from Vietnam. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, I am back on with Tulan from Ronin Tactics and Mike Stahl, who we've had on a couple of times, who is a, a MACB SOG Green Beret who served in Vietnam. So Tulan happens to be Vietnamese. He was born in South Vietnam, and his, uh, he escaped uh, once Saigon fell and uh, made his way over to America. So I'm going to hand it over to Tu, and Tu's going to tell you guys the story of how he escaped Vietnam and came to America. Hey, guys, it's Tu from uh, Ronin Tactics. Um, so basically, I, I want to say, hey, thanks, Mike, for coming on, man. It, it means a lot to me. Um, and also, you know, just a, a little bit about my background. Um, after the fall of uh, Saigon, uh, I was born in December 17, 74, and uh, after the fall of Saigon, you know, the, the North Vietnamese came in and pretty much anybody who was educated, uh, anybody who served in the South Vietnamese uh, military um, was pretty much imprisoned um, and also shot down and gunned down on the streets. So my grandfather um, said, hey, there's no way my two grandsons are going to grow up to be communists. Uh, and that's what we're looking at, you know, once the fall of Saigon came and uh, Vietnam became a communist state. So my grandfather took his life savings and gave it to my mother. And she um, smuggles out of country uh, pretty much by uh, on on the wooden boats. And and I tell you this, like when we escaped from Vietnam, everybody was trying to leave at that time. Um Anybody with money, anybody without money, whatever, they, some people would walk out of the country. Some people would escape on, uh, on a plane. Some get on a boat. Well, I was part of the boat people. Um, 
so when we got on these uh, on these wooden boats, they're overstuffed um, with other fleeing refugees. And there was um, when we started escaping out, there were bandits uh, out there that would interdict our um, these escaping ships, and pretty much would go on and you know you name it, they rape, uh, rob, and and take from the refugees. Somehow we navigated our way through a bunch of these bandits and we went into Indonesia. Uh, well, it was actually Malaysia. And we, we navigated towards Malaysia and the Malaysian Coast Guard pretty much shot at us and, and, uh, and stopped our boat. Now, now, you have to understand, like, think about what's going on with Syria. You know, think about all the refugees that's trying to escape. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants them in their country. Nobody trusts them. Um, so the Malays stopped our boat. They pretty much roped in our boat and drugged us back out into the Pacific Ocean, shot our engine, cut the line, and left us there to die. So we we floated. I, you know, I don't – my mother said we floated for – you know, two, three weeks. I, I don't know, but people are dying, uh, starvation. People are dying of dehydration. Um, somehow by the miracle of God or, uh, we, we landed in a certain, we drifted in Pacific ocean. Now, if you think about this, you think about, if you take a piece of wood and you throw it in Pacific ocean and somehow it drifted at that time, at that location, that lat long, when a Russian supply boat crossed the Pacific Ocean uh, in a supply route. Um, the, the Russian supply boat took us on board, took us to Indonesia where we docked and um, went to a refugee camp. At that time, you know, like monks came down and, you know, took care of the refugees and, and everything else. Uh, my aunt married a American special forces lieutenant and, uh, he was able to expedite the paperwork to get us over to the United States. And after spending uh, eight to eight months to a year in Indonesia in a refugee camp, uh, we were able to make our way to the United States. So that's pretty much how I made my way to the United States and uh, escaped from, you know, Vietnam. Um, so, you know, what, what's unique was growing up in in United States, growing up in in, in Fayetteville. Uh, around Fort Bragg, where you had, you know, the home of the Green Berets. Um, so my my mother eventually remarried uh, to uh, American Special Forces Green Beret. So I was raised at a very young age, understanding what it means to be a Special Forces soldier and the sacrifices they made. And what's unique about all this is eventually my, my uncle, uh, who was imprisoned for 10 years, uh, in the North Vietnamese prison camps uh, because he was an officer in the South Vietnamese uh, army. Eventually made his way to the United States. And, you know, growing up, I was young. Uh, I didn't understand what he was going through. I just thought that he was really weird off, you know. I, you know, raised around my mother, I knew, like, her hardships. And I understood, like, you know, she was facing her PTSDs. Uh, I mean, God, man, half our family was wiped out in front of her. Um, you know, just growing up around that environment and talking to my stepfather and, and understanding the Green Beret, I was, I was raised around Sante Raiders, you know, Mac Vsog, uh, 
legendary Magneto guys um, and, and Special Forces um, Green Berets. And, and I tell you, man, it's it took hold of me at a very young age. So I knew like when I was growing up, I knew what I had to become and how I'd had to go back in these foreign countries and give back. So that's really a little bit my, about my background. Um, but the great thing is we have Mike here today. And uh, there's some questions I, I would like to ask you, if you don't mind, Mike. Sure, I do. I'd love to, love to have the discussion with you. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, growing up around, um, you know, also thank you for everything you've done, man. And, you know, I appreciate everything your generation has done, not just in the war, but also uh, molding the face of Special Forces Green Berets today, man. So just just thank you. (laughs) It was the job. You know how it goes. So when... The Vietnam War uh, was happening. We realized we're fighting a different type of uh, warfare, guerrilla, kind of more of a guerrilla tactics hit and run, um, fighting the insurgency pretty much. So President Kennedy activated the Navy SEALs and the Special Forces Green Berets uh, during that time. So, you know, and maybe you you were not in the Special Forces uh, initially during that time, but how – did they start shaping and molding the army into start recruiting for this special assignment? Uh, well, when, when I first enlisted in 62, there was a, you know, a poster up in the recruiting office. But at that time for guys like me, it was just totally impossible. You had to be 25. You had to be on your second enlistment, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I never even considered special forces. Of course, you didn't hear anything about it until it was kind of the perfect storm for me when I got to Fort Ord for my Arabic language training as a parachute rigger uh, and got involved with the sport, Fort Ord Sport Parachute Club. The uh, special forces recruiter, uh, Gordon Mike McPherson from the 7th, joined the club, and there was a guy from the 1st there. But this was also the time Barry Sadler's song, The Green Beret, came out. And as, and as well as that album being released, which was really an international bestseller at the time, uh, there were lots of young officers in the Sport Parachute Club that were going through various languages that had either just got out of special forces training or whatever. So there was a lot of influence, but it was thinking back, strangely, there was very little conversation overtly about what was going on. Uh, but I was actively recruited then into special forces as a, as opposed to uh, the recruiter going out and giving some sort of a Gabriel demonstration to a basic training company. Uh, so uh, so that's how I got into it. And uh, uh, obviously the training, when I went through, that would have been in 1967, January through uh, July of 67, uh, the training was still very much Eastern European oriented with, uh, it was like they were trying to tack on, uh, what was happening in Vietnam, but it was, it was a very difficult thing for them to do at that time, uh, to make that transition. Uh, but keep in mind that force multiplication, uh, that sort of thing, it, it was not new. Of course, that's what was being tried then by the CIA with the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion was using Cubans to go back in there with just advisors. And uh, it was that fiasco that ended up with special forces getting the military mission of force multiplication, 
with the various MAG, M-A-A-G, uh, assignments in the Philippines and Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, wherever the MAG units were, uh, pre-MACV. Okay, is that <laughs> did I talk long enough? I kind of lost my train of thought there. No, no, you brought up an interesting point there, you know, and that's, you know, we haven't really changed that much uh, when we try to take a template uh, from a different country, a different continent, and try to apply it to another continent. And, you know, we, we face that. Uh, when I moved into Africa, we tried to take the uh, Afghani and Iraq uh, template and then try to force multiply in in certain continents where we went into Africa, you know, certain countries um, where we went into Africa and, and, and work with our our local indigenous rebel forces. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting point with the Battle of the Green Beret, man. Uh, you know, my father uh, would play that every morning, and uh, that's what my brother and I would wake up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we would go and, and uh, raise the American flag. Um, and uh, it's just a different it's, – it's weird now, you know, that – Right there, um, it's not heard of anymore in in our our generation today. You know, raised with the uh, being proud to be American. You know, yeah. So, uh, so how long? Uh, let, let me let me interject something here too. Since you mentioned Africa, I, I've got I've got to I've got to mention a piece that when I was I think it was in our MOI training uh, methods of instruction. Uh, you know the the big thing that. Special forces or teachers were not trained killers, you know, that the big misconception, as you mentioned once with, you know, the Rambo image, but they, they, as a, as a teaching or what they were trying to get across to us was that there had been, uh, two incidents in Africa, uh, that had happened prior to my training. Uh, one was dealing with, with the idea of training NCOs to train their troops, uh, not knowing the culture, apparently a special forces teams went into one country and trained a bunch of officers and NCOs. But within their culture, knowledge was power. So when somebody learned something, they didn't want to pass it on. So that's where that model failed. Uh, you know, apparently they had to go to to, to teaching the, the troops themselves. They couldn't go through the N- NCOs. The other interesting thing was, Apparently, we had special forces team advisors uh, in a very fluid situation in Africa when borders were changing. And we were told that there was one incident where country A went to war with country B. And about three days after the war started, the Pentagon learned that we had special forces advisors on both sides of the conflict. So so that's where compartmentalization can get you into trouble when when the left hand doesn't know what the right hand was doing. So that's that's maybe some interesting anecdotes out of uh, Africa prior to Vietnam even. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you work with, you know, the uh, external agencies, um, you know, that they like to compartmentalize everything and they use us as multifaceted tools um, to get – the, the, the force multipliers on the ground. And that's the, that's where like a lot of the, the younger generations ask me, Hey, you know, are you guys a direct action force or are you guys just teachers? Um, you know, people don't understand there's different facets to being a green beret, you know, and, and what makes us so unique and so lethal, uh, is that our ability to master, 
the basics. You know, we are a lethal uh, capacity within uh, the uh, within the, the army. And what makes us so dangerous is we could put 12 guys on the ground and produce up to a battalion or a unit size element and overthrow a government. Uh, so that's the difference, you know. Um, well, that's what, well, well, you know, the SEALs have been getting a lot of press with the movies and stuff. And, and, uh, what I tell people, if the discussion comes up, well, a special forces soldier can be trained to do and do anything as well as any SEAL can do, whether it be sniping or scuba or whatever, but special forces is the intellectual side of the military. That isn't normally our mission. Uh, special forces works best with intel gathering, whether it be recon or, you know, working spy networks or with force multiplication. And that means more than just training soldiers. That's community development and, and the uh, med caps going out and, and keeping the, the population healthy. Uh, so uh, that's why today the big emphasis with special forces is college education. Uh, when I, when I got into special forces as a high school dropout, uh, obviously, I had the potential because I've got a master's degree now, but you just can't be a dummy and put on a beret. It isn't going to work. You've got to be able to think for yourself, think out of the box, and work independently as well as work within a team. So it takes it takes some skills a lot of people just don't have or skill set or talents or whatever. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people don't see it. They they want to kick in the door, and you know, and that's great, and shoot you guys in the face, and, and that's great too. But the whole thing is this, man: it's it's once you know you leave the once we leave, what's there? You know, yes. You know what what remains of that country? And and I tell you, you know, because I kind of talked a little bit a brief history about myself is that you know I. I I seen the remains, you know, I seen what my mother's been through and, and, and after the Americans uh, left my native country, you know, what happened, you know, how quickly you can have freedom and how quickly it can be taken away from you. Yes. And, and I tell you within the special forces, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, man, is, you know, we look for the intellectuals, like you said, you know, our selection process is the longest selection process uh, with the Q course in the whole army. And there's a reason why is because we're trying to develop their minds, not just their bodies. I mean, you, you have to be an athlete, definitely have to be an athlete to be in special forces, but we develop the mind and the unique way of thinking and Intel drives operations. If you do not understand the ground picture before you even hit the ground and you're just a nug, you're just a trigger puller that we really don't need. Um, so and, you know, that's that's the whole thing, man, is, you know, you guys kind of laid the, the road for us and we're continuing to, to, to walk down this road. And with this war um, that's going on, you know, 15 years now, you know, in, in every continent you can think of, you know, it's not just the Middle East. The global war on the perpetual global war on terror is what we're in now. That's right. You know, and, you know, yeah, I look for. And it, it is so strange because after Vietnam, they said no more wars that didn't have some sort of concept. How are we going to end it? And getting into Iraq, everything was, what's our exit strategy? What's our exit strategy? After all that emphasis, we're now in a conflict with no exit strategy and no, no real tactical strategy for winning the conflict. 
That's right. And, you know, with the modern war that's going on now, you know, I, I, I template uh, kind of like, you know, Iraq to the Vietnam era. You know, the media got a hold of uh, what's going on on the ground, you know, broadcasting everything, uh, you know, coming home to people bad-mouthing us, kind of like what you guys dealt with, yep. with the media exposure you guys had in Vietnam. And and I tell you, you know, with the drawdown, when, when I seen the drawdown in Iraq in my final a few missions um, there, I, I realized that there, it would have been less than a year before the fall of Iraq. Mm-hmm. We, then we're going to have to put more troops on the ground again. And that seems like what's going to happen. You know, we're going to reenter Iraq and reclaim the ground that we took before. And, you know, it's just... It's a big mess, kind of like you know what happened to Vietnam, you know, with the, you know, with, with your drawdown, and you know, can you talk a little about that, Mike, with the, you know, Vietnam being the first war that was truly broadcast through the media, and and how the Americans, uh, you know, didn't accept the war uh, because this is truly no propaganda. This is actual footage of soldiers dying, and they saw a glimpse of what war is. Not a glamorous thing or propaganda. Um, they seen it. So when you came back home, can, can you talk about that generation and how they they felt about the, the soldiers? Oh, sure. When when I got back in, uh, well, it started actually with special forces while I was there because we had some incidences that hit the news. There was the uh, the. <laughs> The uh, uh, assassination of the double agent, uh, you know, in the in the bay off uh, Natrang, and then uh, not, not special forces, but Lieutenant Cali, and and uh, I remember a joke that that appeared in one of the publications over there. It was two guys in a foxhole. One guy was obviously the, the old troop, and the other guy was the FNG. And he, the old troop, is saying, "Welcome to Vietnam. Who's your attorney?" <laughs> I mean that that was the mindset even before I left Vietnam. Um and when I came back from Vietnam the first time, uh no transition like guys should get. I mean they're at uh, the Air Force Base uh of damn what's the Air Force Base outside of Frisco. Uh Anyway, we were issued a, a clean set of greens with with all our stuff on it, and given given a bus ticket to get into the airport, uh, and that's where the hippies were were uh, you know spitting on on veterans coming back. And uh, being a green beret, I think uh, I remember sitting in a terminal waiting for my plane, and these hippies coming through, going around like it was like a big U. They were handing out pamphlets. And four or five people before they got to me, they kind of took notice of me. And then they took a big wide berth like I had leprosy or something uh, around me to continue their, their peace talks. And uh, even back back home, uh, my homecoming was my wife meeting me at the airport. And when I visited my my mother and family, it was like coming home from summer camp. There was no talk of Vietnam because the civilians are not prepared to deal with, as you said, to the real brutality of war when it's shown every night on the 6 o'clock news and every morning on the Today Show. Uh, so the, the American population, I just think, got burnt out on it, and that left the troops coming home with absolutely no catharsis whatsoever 
uh, even even uh, my nephew, uh, a year younger than I, was a uh, infantry, and then. Uh, went back to Vietnam as a chopper pilot and uh, was awarded a DSC flying one of those darn flying cranes. Uh, he and I spent about two years together after Vietnam, and I have no idea how he earned his DSC. We never talked about it. It just was a, t- a taboo topic. Uh, I had a lady in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, soon after I got out, I was in civvies, but my hair was still very airborne looking. And uh, when everybody else, of course, all the other guys had the long hair and very sophisticated lady walked up to me and she said, hmm, people like you belong in jail and walked off. And I'm sitting there, what the hell did I do, you know? Uh, but it was, we were the baby killers. I mean, it was so bizarre because, it, you know, one day they're marching in the streets about bring the troops home, end the war in Southeast Asia. And then when we came home, they blamed us for the war. And besides the war, there was a lot of other things going on at that time. Watergate and the, you know, the draft dodgers and, and the aftermath of Vietnam. So it was just for us Vietnam veterans today, that whole period was just a big boil on the soul of America. And it, Americans just wanted to lance it and forget about it. I was talking to a neighbor and her sister the other day over the fence, had just met them, and we were chatting about problems with the VA. The sister's husband is a veteran and now getting screwed around by the VA and stuff. And I happened to mention the homecoming, and this 47-year-old woman said, oh, she had no concept that, that Vietnam veterans were called baby killers. Uh, and then when I started talking to her, she was very, very naive about the whole history of Vietnam because it's not really handled in schools anymore. You know, it's just kind of brushed over. So, so, so it's one of those things where, where if we don't learn from our history, we are doomed to relive it. And you're right, man. It's, when I went to school, you know, there was not very much uh, educational on truly what happened in Vietnam. And, you know, I, I was raised in the 80s, you know, uh, if you think about it, it was pretty much right after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I came over to the States and and facing racism and, and everything else uh, because they didn't know the difference, man, they, they, nor did they care. Uh, right. They didn't know the difference between the North or South Vietnamese. They didn't. They only understood that the North Vietnamese came and wiped out half my family. Maybe they would have cared, but you know, to tell you the truth, I don't think the world pretty much cares uh, because they don't understand. You know, how can you understand about something that you never experienced? Dude, you know? don't, don't we see that today with Americans resisting refugees coming here? I mean, just as they saw all Vietnamese all of a sudden as bad guys, now all Muslims are bad people. All Arabs are bad people. Keep them out of the country, even though these people are going through the same kind of things you and your family went through. Absolutely, man. You know, and what people don't understand is that how was America founded? Like, what was this country founded on? (laughs) Exactly. We were founded on, you know, religious freedom, promise of a new land. Uh, right and freedoms, you know, and we fought for it. And every race, culture, no matter how they got to America, no matter how they got to this new world, you know, being a refugee, being a slave, being indigenous servant, whatever it is, we made this country what it was and what it is today. Did we forget, you know, did we forget where we really came from? 
Well, well, the term term I haven't heard since I was in school was America, the melting pot of of the world. That concept that we take in all cultures and based on that, we come up with something better by not being so so narrow minded and so so you know so narrow in our views by accepting thoughts from all around the world and giving giving voice to everybody that's our strength to me yeah you know and uh, you know i i understand what you've been through mike i unfortunately i've been called baby killer and i've been called you know war criminal whatever mm-hmm. you want to call you know a soldier who served his country you know and, and I tell you, man, you know, I went to a few of my uh, friends, teammates, funerals, and I was spit on uh, by civilians. And I was told that, you know, thank God for dead soldiers and IEDs and, you know, and and it's hard to ignore that, man. You know, it's hard to to say, you know what, these are ignorant people and I'm going to move on because these are Americans. These yes. are guns I'm fighting for mm-hmm. uh, and they're waving the American flag. And, you know, under the camouflage of American flag and this Christian group, and yet they're spitting on us and saying, thank God for dead soldiers. And, and yeah, I could, I could brush it off as ignorance, but man, it, it does scar you, you know, it, it does. does scar you. Because when you come home after serving for so hard and so long and, and seeing the brutalities of war, and this is what you come home to. And to this day, you know, on social media, you know, I get, you know, ignorant people who only sees one side of the story and say, hey, you guys are baby killers or you guys are dropping, you know, bombs on a country. And and I tell you what, man, if we really didn't care about civilians, we wouldn't put, you know, guys on the ground. You know, we would just bomb you out of the continent, out of the earth, the face of the earth. But if they only truly understand what the special forces guys do, you know, we are in there helping, advising, assisting, living with the locals, you know, providing medical aid, you know, we're a multifaceted tool along with a lethal uh, capability. And that's what makes us so unique. And that's why I believe in the mission so much is because it's not about just killing. It's about restoring hope where there's no hope. Well, well, you know, the, the, the special forces motto, Dio Presso Liber, is generally translated something like to liberate the oppressed. But if you actually look at the meaning, it's more like helping the oppressed to liberate themselves uh, is the true meaning behind it when you translate it. And, and it's the idea of teaching a man to fish as opposed to giving a man a fish. You can, you can send in a major force into a small country like Granada and you can kick ass and take names in Panama or something and pull out, but you haven't taught the people how to govern themselves. You've just abandoned them. And this is what special forces does. We go in, or I, if I can say we go in, uh, you go in, you help the people liberate themselves, and then you give them the tools they need to 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 self-govern and and to keep those problems from coming out coming up again uh and and that takes it like you said to when you send a 12-man team in basically behind enemy lines to start insurgency against a, a an oppressive government uh those troops well the the they're I don't think there are accolades enough to really lay on troops that will do that for another people 
Yeah, you know, when you go into a country and you see their hardships, you know, and and it's almost amazing thing to see is, you know, during an invasion or during an initial link up when these people are being oppressed for so long. And when I say oppressed is they can't even go and, and receive a college education. If they believe in anything other than what the government mm-hmm. dictates, then they will be eliminated uh, or their families is massacred. And or, you know, in Africa, rebel forces would come in and annihilate villages with machetes, mm-hmm. you know, and this is what you're going to come up with. So these are war hardened uh, rebel forces or insurgencies that you're, you're you're linking up with organizations and you're you're giving them hope. And and I'll tell you, man, it's almost um, how I want to say this. You have to put it. Besides your differences, you know, because some of these these tribal regions, you know, like for me, they didn't accept, you know, an Asian American. They they see an Asian at face value. And, and you know, I was looked down upon. But you have to put all these differences aside because you have to believe in what you're doing, you know. And um, and like you said, you know, our motto, Presto Liberare, is we're storing hope where there's no hope. And we're giving them a piece of knowledge and experience that's going to drive on even when we're gone. War is fucking hell. I'm not sorry. War is hell. There's nothing nice about it. Uh, the best thing to do in war is get it over quickly. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that's pretty damn brutal. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, and that's the thing is all through history, you know, war is brutal. And, you know, growing up reading books and, and everything else, uh, even going through special forces training before the war, when war happened, I mean, that's when we truly uh, learned. Uh, and you can either walk away hating or you can walk away humbled um, by war. And and I tell you, man, it's there are certain images that will burn in your mind. You know, we're not there to kill babies. We're not there to kill the innocents. We're there to hunt down, you know, the insurgents, the rebels or whatever, the enemy that's, that's there. And we're going to hunt them down. But understand that they like to hide behind civilians. They like to use civilian populations and they'll shoot at you and gun you down and you see your teammates dying. And what are you going to do? You know, and there's a large crowd riding around you. What are you going to do? You know, and that's there's no right or wrong answer, but there is an answer that's going to get you out of there. You know, there's an answer that's, you know, it's going to keep you alive. And um, and that's the fine line we have to cross, man. It's like, you know, our moral and ethics and then war, you know, and it's, um, it's a sad thing. Well, you said one thing, too, that's very true. I don't care how much psychological assessment, training, or whatever you go through, until you've actually been shot at and are doing some shooting back, until you've been in that crucible, you don't know whether you've got what it takes or not. Uh, one, of, one of the operations I went on uh, in, in the Howduck, where we ran into the Yellow Star Battalion, I uh, took a little company of CIDG and found out we were surrounded by a crack NVA battalion just before Tet. Uh, we got out of there and we prevailed, but the medic that was with me, uh, uh, E7 medic, our senior medic, uh, when we got back, it was his first real time under pressure. He went to top and said, hey, man, he said, he said, I'm a good medic, but I just can't deal with this field stuff. He said, you got to get me reassigned, uh, which... 
I give the man a lot of credit rather than say, hey, you know, I'm just going to keep it up. He knew he knew what he could do and what he couldn't. And I really don't know what happened to him. But there are some people that uh, just can't take the pressure when it gets real. And uh, I don't think there's any more pressure in combat than for the special forces soldier. Yeah, absolutely, man. Like war is um, there's a, a, a smell there's a taste to it. There's a feel that you can't describe. Um, and I tell you, man, if I, if I don't have to serve another day in war, I'll be a happy man. It's, <laughs> you know, um, once you walk away and you're, you don't walk away humble and, um, it's a sad thing cause you didn't learn your lesson then. And, um, and I think, I think the worst is the numbing, you know, all of all the things that happens in warfare, if you're going to survive, you become numb. Uh, I mean, I I can think back to the first body I saw laying on a trail, part of the skull missing, the brains laying there. And it was the first one, and I'd already gotten in. It wasn't an American. It was was some poor Vietnamese villager or VC. I don't have any idea. But it was that, that immediate attitude, it's just dead meat. It doesn't matter. Because you can't go through warfare like you're walking down the street in New York and somebody gets hit by a car. <laughs> and and yeah. that emotional numbing, I think, is the worst thing that happens to anybody in that situation. I, I agree. And, it, you know, it can, it, it's a, I think that's a defense uh, mechanism for a human being because just being actively engaged, being shot at um, – you know, Miyamoto was born a, a Ronin. He wrote the Book of Fire Rings in in a, a Buddhist cave, and and I tell you, he he said one thing that always stuck with me was, um, "You should fight like you already died." You know, that numbness also plays an effect in combats, where there's a certain point where you still think, but your body reacts. And you're kind of like in an outer body experience and you don't care sometimes. You just don't, you know, when rounds of shots, shots are fired, you need to do and react. You need to take that initiative away from the enemy um, right away. Otherwise, they will control the situation. And um, But, yeah, the numbness plays into two effects. One is during combat and then numbing to the sights and sound of war. You know, a a smell of a dead body will stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. Yes. So with that said, um, Mike, with the drawdown, can you talk about that, man, and and how you – you know, with the drawdown happening, um, with the special forces, uh, Vietnamese special forces, you guys are training. What what transpired? How did they react? And uh, and how did you feel, man? Like you know, having to leave pretty much your brothers that you've been training. Uh, it, because people don't understand, it's very hard leaving your your force. You know, the force that you trained, that you fought with. No matter yes. even if you're from different countries, you know, you love them like they're your own freaking family so can you talk about that man well yeah and i and i can make it very personal when i got to vietnam uh the first time you know i i uh, my closest friend that uh, vietnamese friend was my interpreter when i was at the c team and 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 then when i went back the second time i made friends with the vietnamese captain of uh, captain uh, dai we vong vinh fought 
And uh, he and I just bonded, and he went into Da Nang about the same time I did, and we maintained our friendship. He, he got promoted to major. Uh, when when I got wounded and, and was medevaced out of Vietnam, it was a very, very surrealistic experience because it was there was no closure. It wasn't like when I left the first time and he could go around and say goodbye, and my interpreter took me down to Da Nang for dinner and that sort of thing. Uh, and and then no contact back. So I can say that that Captain Fott, Major Fott, became my symbol of all the Vietnamese friends that I had worked with and left behind. The Mountain Yard uh, team that I had that 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 I had in effect abandoned because we knew that year. You know, when I was there, sixty nine seventy. Uh, constant talk about the Vietnamization and the drawdown and. And morale was getting really bad because who wants to be the last guy in the country to get killed? Uh, even Mac V. Sog, uh, CCN was deteriorating, uh, didn't have the same cohesion it had before. Uh, for, for example, uh, you know, my last mission, I was sort of compelled to do that even though we were strictly volunteer and nobody ran missions 30 days short. I mean, it's like you said to... Uh, when you get that short, you start worrying about survival. You're no longer worried about the mission. You're worried about getting through that last mission. And when you start worrying about your survival, you start making mistakes. Uh, so it was just, it was just, it was kind of weird because we knew the Vietnamese were going to lose the war when we left, but there wasn't a thing we could do about it. So it was like, Dealing with somebody with a, a relative with a terminal disease, you know, you just kind of don't talk a lot about it. And uh, uh, when I got back to the states, I didn't watch the news, I didn't follow anything, and uh, uh, just kind of peripherally knew about the fall of Saigon because I just, I just kind of withdrew from the whole thing. Uh, and and. On the other side of it, I started studying the history of Vietnam, you know, how they'd been at war for a thousand years. And, and I started learning a lot of the things I wish I had known before I had gone over <laughs> because, uh, you know, it put it all into perspective. You know, what, what's funny, Mike, is that um, what I find is, is you know, I, I worked in 27 different countries, man, and sometimes I don't even know about the country, you know, when, when it shows up on the radar, you know, we don't know anything about the country. We don't even know geographically where it's located, nor did we even care, uh, you know, before we even given the mission. But what's unique about this is that once we hit the ground and you live with the, with the forces, either rebel forces or the fed force, and you understand their hardships and you eat their food, they become a, a bond, a brotherhood that can't not, it, it can't even be described, man. These guys are going to fight alongside you, and they're going to protect you just as much as you're going to protect them. And, you know, I, I left some of my uh, foreign brothers because America didn't have interests in that country anymore. We finished our, our mission. And it's hard, man. It's, I couldn't imagine, like, leaving um, a family behind that's that's what it has to feel like and you know the the circumstances that you're going to leave them in um that's got to be really hard and and i understand like when you came back to the united states kind of like dropping off the radar because 
I, you know, I had to do that uh, myself is, you know, some of the countries I came back from, I didn't want to hear what happened because I know what's going to happen. So. Um, I think one of the reasons why our pipeline is so long and why we look intellectuals is that really, man, you not just book smart, you need to be really street smart. You, you really have to listen to your senses. And the reason why I'm saying this is, you know, working with indige forces, you know, first you're in a foreign country. It can be uh, sub-Saharan desert, triple canopy jungles. Um, the, you're working in the most adverse conditions and you're relying on a lot on rebel or um, uh, fit forces. That's their country, man. That's their backyard. Um, so a lot of our stuff, we, we're going to have to, you know, once we vet them and train them, um, we're, we're going to have to trust them, you know, like uh, Malaysia, you know, hunting down bandits uh, in Malaysia. You know, we had to rely on our forces to guide us through this, you know, rainforest, you know, this rain, triple canopy, rainforest, jungle with indige forces and any wildlife that can just stomp on you and kill you. So you have to really understand like how they live, um, you know, how are, how are they hiding how are they moving and patrolling? Because it's, although we're trained on a lot of things, you know, once you get into triple canopy jungle, everything will kill you there, you know? Um, but that's a double-edged sword because the, the rebel forces can lead us into an ambush. Um, your force can turn on you at any time. They have their motives. If you don't think they put their, their sources out there, and embed in, you know, and, and get screened by the agency. And then, you know, now you're training with a rebel, a, a true, you know, your, your enemy, and they're going to lead you into an ambush line or whatever, you know. So that's where the street smart come out. You have to be able to pick it up, read the signs, and it's a chess game, man. It's a chess game. So that's why one of our, like I said, our training is very long. And where you really going to grow is on the A team, on the ground, doing it. So, Mike, can you uh, can you talk about that a little bit more, man? With with how you, you know, dealt with the, the South Vietnamese or the Vietnamese soldiers, and did you ever had them turn on you or or anything? Uh, yeah, too. Let, let me. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking. Uh, I was in the army about. Four and a half years, I guess, by the time I hit Vietnam. So, and I'd listed when I was 17. So I had some maturity. Uh, and what it made me think of was the flight over to Vietnam on the first, first tour. It was an 18 hour flight with not a lot to do. So I read a book, and the book I chose to re- read was called The Ugly American, which dealt with our diplomacy efforts in Southeast Asia, pre Vietnam, of course. And the ugly American, as a cliche, that's kind of the way I had learned about Americans going overseas. When we went to France or England, we were kind of arrogant bastards and, you know, really patting ourselves on the back for being Americans. I got to Vietnam right out of training group, uh, right out of my my O&I training, my operations and intelligence training. I got sent to an A-team, A-102 at Tinfook. The intel sergeant had already de-roast, so I got there, had nobody to break me in. The team sergeant said, here's your office, here's your desk, here's the combination, you're the intel sergeant. Of course, my job was primarily to 
be the advisor to the Vietnamese. Uh, they made all the decisions. We were just advisors. We had no real say to anything. And so uh, our interpreter's name at the time was uh, time was Tom. We called him Tom. And so uh, first thing I wanted to do was hook up with the Vietnamese Special Forces Intel Sergeant. So got with Tom, and we went over to their team house. And this guy must have been 120 years old. Uh, I mean, he was just just old. He looked like an old Marine. I mean, just nothing but leather neck. Uh, he had been in the Viet Minh, had fought, fought the French most of his life. And, and I looked at this guy, and through the interpreter, I said, hey, you know, hey, Trung Si, I said, you know, we both know that, that I'm here as your advisor, and, and, and I'm supposed to be kind of telling you what to do, but I'm, I'm the green guy here. I'm new. Uh, you kind of lead me, you tell me what you need, and I'll do my best to be your helper. And and I think that was the smartest thing I could have ever done, rather than go in there and come across as somebody that just knew everything about Vietnam. I let the guy know I didn't know anything, and I needed his help. And uh, uh, that, I think, was the proper way to approach it. Uh, we made good friends, I thought. He spoke, I think he spoke very good English, although he, he would never admit it. He seemed to understand a lot. Uh, I think it was a day or the day after that he took me into the ville, uh, just he and I and uh, uh, no interpreter or anything. He took me in to, to feed me a Vietnamese meal, which he, he played a good GI dirty trick on me by feeding me the hottest food in town. Uh, <laughs> But I think I think that's the attitude, you know. If you come in and you tell the indige, "We're here to save you," we're going to be the big saviors. That's where you make the mistake. But when you come in and say, "Hey, I'm going to do everything I can to help you save yourself," uh, that's building the rapport. Uh, when I got there, one of the first things they told me was that not to trust the Vietnamese because there was actually a two hundred dollar a head bounty on every special forces dude. Uh, so that that we were subject to being just taken out for the bounty. But on the other hand, when we went out on operations, our saving thing was the Vietnamese couldn't get airstrikes, they couldn't get medevacs, and they couldn't get artillery without an American on the radio. So as long as we had still had that value, we knew that uh, that we were fairly safe. But I joined A-102, A-102 which had been run out of the Ashau, and in the Ashau Valley, when they got overrun there, they had an entire company of CIDG that were VC infiltrators. Uh, on my A camp, we, my intel sergeant uh, told me we had three VC that he knew about. And my first response was, well, Trunksy, why don't you take them out? And he said, because we know who they are. And he told me that he had... Uh, assassins assigned to each one of those VC infiltrators that if we were ever to be come under attack, those would be the first three fatalities in the camp. So bottom line was this was this guy was a hell of a lot smarter than I was, and that's where I got my real education was from him and those experiences. End of story. No, that's a good point, man. You you have to listen to your your um your partner force, you know, you can't come in with the mindset that I'm this great American because to tell you the truth, man, uh, and some of these countries, they have more combat experience than you will ever have in your whole life. 
Um, you have to put aside your differences and you have to make it work because you do not have a lot of time. Uh, the intel is sketchy and you have, as a special forces guy, has to rely on your, your partner in force, the intel that you're gathering, your street credit and, and put together the big picture. You know, and that's what kept us alive. If you're able to do that, then you'll be successful. Um, so, and and it's also being—I mean, it's like raising kids. It's being authentic with the indige. You can't be nice to them in their face and then diss them when they're not around. You know, you can't use racial slurs. In Vietnam, one of the things that I hated the most was was with all the guys and their racial slurs. You know, somehow dehumanizing even even our allies. Uh, you know, the the look long duck be at the LLDB were commonly referred to as the little lousy dirty bastards. Uh, and, and again, you know, you can find the the dirty the the rotten apple in the in the barrel. You know, there's always that bad guy. But it's it's like we have a tendency to do when there's one plane crash, we focus on that and forget about all the safe landings. When there's one bad indige, you focus on that and forget about all the good guys. Yeah, you know, and I think it's it it's uh, it comes from from now for from my generation. It comes from the media a lot, uh, even the books. You know, when you read, you know, it dehumanizes people. And even, you know, uh, you wouldn't, you should never misjudge your enemy. Never. <laughs> you, should, you should never uh, put them and say, hey, these guys are less educated than me. Let me tell you something, man. That's the biggest mistake that you're going to make and probably your last. Because um, these guys, yeah, they may not have the education that we have because they didn't have the luxury to, to be born in a free country. But they are war-hardened streets credit uh, fighting lethal force. And if you don't recognize that, you're not going to last on a battlefield. Um. Yeah, actually, I'd like to just add something. I was reading a, a Vietnam, a Mac V. Sog book um, <clears throat> called the Across the Fence by John Mayer, And he spoke of a time that uh, there was a, I don't believe it was his team. I believe this was another, another recon team and they had a new one zero, which is what the team leaders were uh, uh, called. And this team leader, he, he never ran recon before and he'd come in from an A team. And I guess uh, at that time, recon was more fluid with, uh, if a guy had more experience than he was, he got the higher rank versus the guy who was the higher rank with no experience running recon. But somehow in this situation, he ended up as the team leader and they, they inserted in, I forget exactly where, but, um, they got into a brief firefight upon insert. So the, the second in command of the team and the, and the team leader for the indigenous, uh, soldiers were recommending that they, they leave, right? And and then so he pulls rank and he he's forcing them to continue on with the mission, right? Which is obviously not a good idea at that point. So they're moving into the jungle and there's a, a, a well-worn trail. Now, according to the book, they're saying, you know, and one of the rules of recon is to never use the trails, right? So they're trying to plead with this guy, like, let's get off the trail and move through the jungle. And then he had a very, like, arrogant response, like, you know, no slant-eyed 
be it is going to, you know, tell an American what to do. And literally, you know, 45 seconds later, he got shot in the head and they got into like a uh, horrendous firefight, which they eventually made it. Which out one of the team members uh, shot him in the head? <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was tongue in cheek, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just, just kind of an example of uh, what you guys are talking about. Well, let, let me read something here. I, I got something here that's from an NCOIC of the Special Forces Assessment and Selection Course in a welcome speech to USF candidates. And I just love this, what, this quote. I don't know where it came from. Somewhere a true believer is training to kill you. He is training with minimum food or water in austere conditions day and night. The only, thing cl- the only clean thing on him is his weapon. He doesn't worry about the workout, what workout to do. His rucksack weights what it weighs, and he, and he runs until the enemy stops chasing him. The true believer doesn't care how hard it is. He knows he either wins or dies. He doesn't go home at 1700. He is home. He knows only the cause. Now, who wants to quit? This, this, is, this, is, this is the enemy we're fighting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They're not fighting. They're, they're not going to a, a foreign country and fighting for what their, you know, leaders are, are proposing and trying to impose onto a different country. These people are fighting for their lives, um, you know, and their child life and their, their family. So they're going to fight harder than you would. I mean, imagine you being put in that situation. Would you fight for your family? Would you fight for your way of life? Um, and that's who we are working with. Now, with that said, if they are your enemy and they're camouflaged into your friendly force, they're going to do everything they can to sabotage everything you're trying to do. So you have to be smart. You have to really see the big picture and not be so defined to just your mission. You know, you have to understand all the hardships and all their trials and, and understand your mission, but yet understand all the external stressors that goes out there uh, that's going to interfere with your, your mission and in your mission success and, and you getting home. It's like Mike said, the last few operation is when you get complacent. And that's where I hate it because right before I come home and we're going out, that's when we start losing guys. Because, mm-hmm. man, you run hard for so long and then you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you get complacent. You're starting to think on patrols, you're starting to think about, man, I can't wait to get back because this is what I'm going to do. And your mind has to be on the game because you're not concentrating only on the mission. You're looking at your indigenous forces. If they're going to turn on you, if they're taking you down the wrong path, you have to really predict on the, the operational environment and what's going on. Well, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to deployed like, be deployed like you guys are. At least we were there for at least a year, you know. But uh, So it's not in and out. But, man, when you start getting short, you just start worrying about survival and stop worrying about the mission. You can't stop yourself. You know, it just – the only time – in Vietnam, the only time I actually can look back and say I panicked was on that last mission when, when I got hit. My radio went dead and everything was going to shit. You know, our, our, I look back and it seemed like I was screaming prayer fire at the top of my lungs because I had slipped into panic mode. And that had never happened to me in two years of combat. 
but I was two weeks short of coming home. Matter of fact, I got wounded on the 8th of August, and my D-Rose orders were, were uh, dated the 9th of August. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good story, man. <laughs> you know, what I find interesting now that, you know, talking to, to Mike, who was, you know, uh, a, a different generation within Special Forces, um, what I found out is, you know, training – uh, has evolved with with the current situations in the world and um, with our skill set and technology. Weapons changed, our night vision capabilities, technology, uh, drones. But what hasn't changed is the the mindset, the man itself. You know, the reason why we do what we did and why we believe in so strongly in what we do. And uh, you know, I just I just want to thank my. Mike and guys like him to spearheading the way because there wouldn't be this generation uh, of special forces if it wasn't for the current generation holding the the standards, uh, paving the way for the next generation. Even this generation, as I pass the torch on to the next generation, the next generation is going to learn from what we learn. You know, so it's it's very important that uh, people understand that. You know, we look for certain qualities within Special Forces Green Berets itself, uh, and our, our mission is unique. And the reason why we do what we do is because we believe wholeheartedly on what we do. So it was it was nice talking to you, Mike. It was very interesting in seeing your, your perspective and your generation, man. I appreciate it. I enjoyed being here, too. It was, finally, uh, it was really great finally meeting you, and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person come a couple of weeks from now. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. You John. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, as always, I just appreciate both of you guys taking out the time of your day to come on and talk here on the podcast. Uh, I know the audience really appreciates it, and I think this was a, a tremendous uh, interview and time spent on here and i think people are really going to enjoy it so again thank you guys so this is two lamb uh you can find me on social media on instagram at ronin tactics or you can also find me on facebook at ronin tactics and also you can find me on my website at www.ronintactics.com okay and and mike can you drop your website as well for the listeners yeah, I'm pretty much just just like uh, two, except I'm Tricky Misfit. Uh, my <laughs> website is www.trickymisfit.com. Uh, that's my email address, Tricky Misfit at Outlook, and my Facebook is uh, Facebook slash Tricky Misfit. And Mike Stahl will also find me there. Uh, my website is mostly just my personal stories and memoirs from Vietnam. Uh, not a professional site at all. It's just more of a hobby for me than anything else. But anybody's welcome to come and visit. Nice. All right. It was great talking to you guys. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Uh, th- that was very interesting for me, um, and I- and I hope that the listeners can really uh, take some lessons from that. As you uh, you hear the difference and you you see the contrast, and and really, as two highlighted at the very end. I mean. Special Forces soldiers, like like he said, the the technology changes, the the mission might change, and the geographical location is different, but the men of Special Forces are the same, and they and there's a certain um, element that I guess every Special Forces soldier has, and and that's what makes them unique. 
So, you know, as always, I, I enjoy having two on and I enjoy having uh, Mike Stahl on. So um, with that, we'll close out and we'll drop some social media handles and points of contact. Uh, Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. Mike has two Instagram accounts. The first one is Soft Survivor. That's SOF Survivor. The second one is Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, Mike's Twitter is IG Soft Survivor. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I also have two Instagram accounts. My first account is IG Recon, and my second account is Global Recon underscore Inc. And my Twitter account is IG Recon as well. Um, and as always, we encourage you guys to comment, subscribe, and download the episodes on iTunes. That will help keep us in the, the top of the uh, the uh, government category and national category that we're in. So, Mike, I'll pass it over to you. Uh, you have anything you want to close with? Yeah, absolutely, man. On the on the uh, tail end, I just wanted to mention that uh, for the next episode, we're going to have uh, my buddy Kevin, uh, Master Sergeant Kevin. Kevin just retired. He's he's actually not officially retired, but he's retiring at the end of this month. But uh, have been in SF really our entire careers together in third group working for USASOC, and then uh, he just finished up his career working as an ROTC instructor. But he's going to be on. He's got a lot of experience as a sniper, as a breacher, and you guys can check his social media handle, which he just started recently. It's at uh, softrunner, S-O-F, runner, R-U-N-N-E-R, on Instagram, and he is actually retiring and going to be working with Phil Craft on doing some uh, shelters and, and survival training with me. He lives right down the road, so expect some good good stuff. And then look forward to having him on, talking about his experiences in Special Forces, which is um, just as unique as everybody we have on, but from a, from a really different perspective because he's been involved in a lot of uh, spearheading and important operations throughout his military special operations career. So look forward to that. All right, guys, we'll see you in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.